and you. Let's be seated. Bible preachers live between two worlds, as John Stott famously put it. One of the vital responsibilities of Bible teachers then is to bridge the gap. That is, we need to link our culture and times with the culture and times of the Bible. If a bridge is not built to join the two sides, so to speak, the Bible remains something like a distant island that we peer at through binoculars. We get a little view of it, but we really don't get it. We don't experience it. We don't explore it. It doesn't really affect us. We don't smell it, taste it, and touch it, and get into it. Think of the Florida Keys, that string of small islands to the southwest of Florida's southern tip. Most people could never experience these beautiful islands without the long bridges that link them. Those bridges are essential to get to the island and experience it. Ezra 9 is Key West. Ezra 9 is about as far out there as you can go and needs the greatest bridge that we can possibly build. One commentator on these chapters said this, he identified Ezra 9 and 10 as, and I quote, among the least attractive parts of the whole Bible. A Bible commentator calls these chapters among the least attractive in Scripture. I think he's wrong. But Ezra 9 certainly makes a preacher sweat. And it's Christmas, for crying out loud. Tis the season for simple, heartwarming sermons. Well, understand this. we got a big bridge to build. We did not need to continue on in our study of Ezra this particular day at this particular season, but I think there's good reason to stay with it. While we need to build a long bridge, this is an island with much to teach us about our walk with God as His people. And I will insist in the end that this chapter is utterly essential to the Christmas story, and to our redemption. There are commentators on this text who develop the Bible faithfully and biblically, who spend time on Ezra 9 and 10 saying how God's people are so off track here. And the Bible's pointing us in the wrong direction. These are challenging chapters, but I think they're utterly essential. Let's get our bearings again. As we come to chapter 9 of Ezra, Ezra chapter 9, we read the first phrase, after these things. So there's our setting, and what is that setting? Remember, as we look on this chart, uh, perhaps that will help you, but God has enabled two waves of Israelites to return to the promised land from exile in Babylonia. Under the new policy of the Persian king Cyrus, 50,000 Israelites returned to the land in 538 B.C. 
Over 20 years later, now think of the land now with these people in the land, the temple of God is rebuilt on Mount Zion, 515 B.C. Here it proclaims God's splendor and His saving grace. 58 years later, the Persian king Artaxerxes permits another wave of exiles to return from Babylonia to the promised land under the leadership of Ezra the scribe. Ezra's mission is what? We looked at it this last week, the last couple of weeks. His mission is to bring financial aid for the service of the temple. His job is to secure priests and Levites who will go to that temple and are fitted to serve there and carry on the worship. He's bolstering and strengthening the worship of God at the temple. And Ezra himself goes as a uniquely gifted and trained theologian to develop in Israel a unique teaching of Scripture. A ministry of exhortation and encouragement and biblical development. We place him on the line of history as a very significant Bible teacher. Things change a bit after Ezra's ministry. He is so influential and he's now teaching in this land. So, Ezra leading these people. We can kind of see here the 900 mile journey across the Fertile Crescent. 500 miles away as a bird flies from Babylon to Jerusalem. But Ezra leads this journey across the Fertile Crescent. And having reached the land, brings and deposits the massive amounts of money because of God's protection along the way, Israel arrives at this place, the money is there, and now they fill the coffers of the temple. It's bulging with money to, to maintain that worship and to supply what is needed. And Ezra now begins his teaching ministry. So God's Word is being proclaimed in the land by an eminently qualified and gifted master teacher. So as we think of where they stand, right here at the end of chapter 8, as we move into chapter 9, everything seems to be going perfectly for Israel. Tens of thousands have returned to the land. We know it's not been easy. But there's a lot of people now that have come back to the land. The temple has been rebuilt and its service restored. The temple coffers are bulging with Persian riches, supplying the maintenance and the worship there. There are the priests and the Levites that have come with Ezra and are now serving. And Ezra is teaching God's word to God's people. It's a time of uplifting revival and refreshing and movement. But it's that last piece. When you begin to teach God's Word, problems inevitably arise. And God's Word, as Ezra teaches it, strikes a very sensitive nerve. And what we look at today in chapter 9 is real, a real crisis. His teaching of God's Word reveals a vein of hidden idolatry that is clinging to the hearts of God's people and is threatening their very existence. 
Ezra is informed of this infidelity on Israel's part in the first two verses of Ezra 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and they said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. What is the evidence for this serious charge? Verse 2, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race, the holy offspring or seed literally, has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. This is a systemic problem. This isn't just a few people that are doing this on the side. The leadership is bringing the nation into this practice. What on earth is going on here? How do we read this? It's very interesting. This does not strike us as English readers so far removed but verse 1, only three of the nations listed here exist at this time in Ezra. And what this, what this list is, is actually drawing from an earlier time and drawing from the biblical text. So they're using biblical language, not contemporary language. This indicates that through Ezra's teaching of the Bible, they realized that they were living in violation of God's law, and they essentially quote the Scriptures here, even though the actual nations are not all the same that are part of the problem. Israel was called by God to be a holy race. That is, through literal bloodlines, she was to remain distinctive. And God commanded Israel not to intermarry with the nations surrounding them in the land in pursuit of this particular goal of faithfulness and holiness. Now here's where we've got to build a big bridge because that sounds like God is a racist, does it not? You can only marry within Israel. That's all that you can do. And, and what is God saying here to the Israelites? I'd like you to notice in verse 1 the phrase, with their abominations. I've underlined that in my Bible, with their abominations. And verse 2, this faithlessness. God's law and the bridge that we need to build to connect ourselves with what comes across as being very narrow-minded, God's law did not forbid an Israelite to marry a person from another nation. You remember Numbers 12? Moses marries an Ethiopian woman, and there's a lot of upheaval about it. There's a, a rebellion, in fact, that takes place when Moses marries this woman, and God actively defends him in Numbers 12. Or we consider, and maybe particularly at this time of year, Ruth the Moabitess, the great-grandmother of King David and a descendant of Christ. She's a Moabite and she is honored as she comes back to Israel 
and becomes part of the Messianic line. God never restricted foreign people from joining Israel through marriage. What is going on here is that God forbid Israel's widespread intermarriage as a community with pagans with whom they were living. There's a distinction there we must maintain. And notice this, this is a significantly lengthy text, but we find here this very point made in the law of Moses, Exodus 34, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you. Here they are, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God, and rightly so. He is our God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Now in the teaching of the Bible, Ezra has very possibly brought this very passage before the people. And as they begin to think about it and see where it's leading them, they recognize that they are in violation. And this is not something new. As the Psalm 106 says, they did not destroy the people's as it looks back on Israel's history, as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. That is to worship their false gods. To live in violation of God's will. They served their idols. It became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. The one reason God did not want them to join together in marriage and to become part of the Canaanite culture was because He loves children. But by getting involved in that culture, the Israelites began to practice putting children on altars and sacrificing them in the fire. And so they poured out innocent blood. The blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. That's the jealousy of God. He is jealous for Israel. He's jealous for these children who are being sacrificed out of blind idolatry rather than blessed and encouraged and built up and nurtured in the faith. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. They were unfaithful to God. One commentator says Israel's election was not merely for her own comfort, but so she might shine as a witness to the nations for God. This could not be achieved without the maintenance of her distinctive self-identity, and this was threatened by these mixed marriages. Not by individuals coming in among the covenant people and there being interracial marriage as such, but by this cultural adaptation of the Israelites. The bloodline was lost. 
the holy offspring had mixed itself with the peoples of the lands, verse 2. That's the crucial problem. So Israel, a kingdom of priests who were to mediate to the world the wonder of God's grace and saving power, is now circling the drain. She was committing spiritual infidelity and was liable to God's judgment. This was very, very bad news. We find Ezra's initial response in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Sitting in silence, tearing one's cloak, pulling hair from one's head and beard. These are, again, we need a long bridge here, but this is how they dealt, how they mourned, and how they grieved. This was a horrific situation. The Hebrew word translated gathered here in verse 4 indicates that people continued to assemble. They continued to come and to gather around in increasing numbers. Israel was God's light to the nations and that light was about to be extinguished. And Some trembled at the thought. Some had sensitive consciences to what God's word said and how they were failing to honor that word. That's Ezra's initial response is horror. And then we find that he secondly prays. Ezra's prayer begins at least uh, in description there in verse 5 where we find his physical attitude. That By attitude, I'm talking about his, what he's doing physically. Verse 5, At the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Fasting, the Hebrew word, is, is literally humiliation, which often includes fasting, but is even larger uh, in its range than just fasting. But he is humbling himself before God in genuine grief because of this disobedience. We see then, secondly, his penitential lament for Israel's infidelity. Here is, he is crying. He is mourning. He is expressing his grief. Without getting into too many details, he just expresses the sorrow of heart that he faces. Oh my God, he says, verse 6, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for your iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. You see that Ezra makes no excuse. The Israelites, including the leaders of the nation, were entering into covenant through marriage with pagans living in the land. And that was a, more of a significant emphasis for them than it is for us. But they were entering covenant. They were arranging marriages they were uniting themselves legally to the people of the land. And this brings to Ezra shame, a virtue that is nearly extinct in our culture. We are so good at protecting ourselves and defending ourselves and shifting blame. He says, I'm ashamed. It is a virtue, though, shame 
in the right sense of the word that believers understand and practice. We are guilty of breaking God's law. Not only is this true in Ezra's day, but Ezra realizes the connection to Israel's history in verse 7. From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. A reference to the destruction of the northern kingdom by Assyria and to the southern kingdom of Judah by Babylon. God has disciplined His people for infidelity and we're walking right with them here. At verses 8 and 9, he turns from this lament to praise God's fidelity to Israel through the generations. Verse 8, he says, But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. What does he say now? We, we've just gone through this period of, of significant discipline for generations of time with the Assyrians and Babylons. But now, you've shown favor to us, Lord. To leave us a remnant, verse 8, and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a, a little reviving in our slavery. Slavery still to the Persians. Although Persia is helping them tremendously. But this brief moment that he speaks about is the 80 years since the first return under Cyrus. And he's given them a, a secure hold. Israel has, had, a, had staked a position in the land, the text indicates. Her tent was secure for now in the land. This is amazing news. We've talked about this amazing news for weeks as we've worked our way through Ezra. And Ezra rejoices. He praises God for His incomparable grace to Israel. His, he has restored her to the promised land. He has restored worship at the temple in Jerusalem. There's a Jewish writer that says this so ably. He said, By God's grace, I quote him, a small remnant had found its weary way back to its home and driven a single peg into its soil. A solitary ray of light was shining. A faint breath of freedom lightened their slavery. For we are slaves, he says in verse 9. Yet our God has not forsaken us to our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia. These kings have been pouring out the grace of God on our heads. These pagan kings who should have no interest in us have been blessing us over and over by your good hand, Lord. They've extended to us this steadfast love, the end of verse 9, to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. You have been merciful. You have been gracious. You are a God of steadfast love. And in this I, I rejoice. Praise Ezra. Let's just pause for a moment and revel in this truth. God is a God of grace. He is not a pushover who overlooks sin, 
But God rejoices. It is in His nature. It is in His character to extend grace and steadfast love to His people. Take that in. Drink it in and think of it. This is how God has revealed Himself. This means there was nothing in His Word, nothing in His restrictions on marriage that was intended to do anything less than to enhance the spiritual prosperity and the joy of His chosen people, to protect them, to protect their children, and to pour out His grace upon them. That's why He gives restrictions. Just like any loving mother or father will do with their children. There's some things that you can't do because I love you. God as a father to Israel and as a father to us extends this grace over and over and over to us. Now, there are times God's word places some serious restrictions on us. It goes against our flesh, goes against what we want. Times that word brings conviction and requires repentance of sin. Times it just requires faith to believe. Why? Would he say this? But we trust it, knowing that he is a God of steadfast love. If there's any doubt in your mind that he is, we're instructed by the New Testament to look to the cross and to say that if God did not withhold his only son, we know that he loves us. That he is a God of steadfast love so we too, with Ezra, should pour out our praise to God and have been today. He is a God who pours out His grace upon us day after day and we gather routinely to praise Him and to thank Him as we should every moment of our lives. He blesses the work of our hands. As we've gathered here today, We've sung these songs of praise to our Lord. We acknowledge that He blesses the work of our hands. We acknowledge that He provides our needs. Sometimes through people who despise Him. He comforts us in sorrow. He strengthens us in weariness. He calms our fears. God is always steadfastly loyal to His people. We know this about Him and we celebrate it. Know it today. And if you're walking in, a la in doubt, a lack of faith, know this about your God. Ezra acknowledges the only reason Israel is alive is the grace of God. And he praises the Lord for his historical blessings on Israel. But next, Ezra pours out his heart in confessions of Israel's law-breaking. And he gets fairly specific now with his prayers of confession. Verse 10, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this, after your great blessing upon us, after your steadfast love and after our sin? What shall we say? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the land, an intensive construction, impure with the impurity. They're very wicked with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, this is what the law has taught us, do not give your daughters to their sons. 
You're handing them over to the devil. Don't do it. Neither take their daughters for your sons. You're bringing that into your home. And never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Big bridge needs to be built there. That sounds like he just hates these people. What he wants to do is remove them from the face of the earth. To destroy them because they continue to draw people down into death and destruction. And God has every right to do that. We, and particularly Americans, will stand up to God here and say, you can't do that. But a pure and holy God who has never done wrong has every right to take any life that he chooses. And these people are going to take the lives of my little children. I gave them 400 years. They're done. That's his prerogative. What Ezra does here in verses 10 through 12 is it's really a compilation. It's been called a mosaic of biblical texts. That is, he's not quoting one passage, but as the master teacher and who knows the law so well, he brings together various strains of thought and says, we have broken your law over and over again, various places in the Bible, in various ways, we have violated what you have called us to do for our good as a sovereign God. Verse 13, the confession continues, and after all that has come upon us for our guilt, or for our evil deeds, and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. Going back to, he's brought us back to the land. Shall we then break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? Again, in that day, marriage is not romance-based. It's contract-based. Families contract with one another and arrange marriages, and that is what's happening. And by this taking place on a wide scale, from the leadership down to the common person, Israel is about to vanish. You have brought a remnant back. We are about to destroy that remnant. He concludes his prayer, no defense of Israel, simply ends his prayer with a straightforward admission of corporate guilt. Verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. We will not take time to focus much on chapter 10, but it's really hard to stop right there. And so we read of Israel's response. This is Ezra's response initially in, in horror and in grief and then in his prayer. 
But while Ezra prayed, chapter 10, verse 1, and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly, not just Ezra, but the people now are weeping as well, coming under conviction of God's Word. They come to him and they too are saying, we deserve nothing but God's judgment. In Shechaniah verse 2, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God. We have broken faith with God. We have been unfaithful to Him and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Let us make a covenant with our God to put away these wives and their children. Big bridge, right? How can they do that? Why not just start fresh now? We'll talk about it. We'll need to keep building a bridge here. I want to just simply point to the emphasis here that there is hope. There is hope in repentance. This is really a beautiful scene as we see these people coming weeping we might suspect that some of the weeping was owing to the extremely difficult relational task that lay ahead of them. Marriages had been arranged and there was no easy way out of these contracts. In that day, marriage, again, had little to do with romance. It was more contractual in its orientation. But this, these are families. This isn't easy. They're in a bad, bad spot. There's no easy way through this. But contextually, what is the greater pain? Contextually, the greater source of pain was the realization that they had sinned against God. That they were brought back to this land to be the remnant, to be the kingdom of priests, to demonstrate to the world how to live. And they had broken God's law and had become like the people around them. It married non-believers because it was convenient. Because it was advantageous. Because it gave them stability in the land. God gave them a stake in the land. Now they want to put down their own stake. Going about it their own way. They weep bitterly because they chose disloyalty to God for the temporal advantages they could gain. And that is the essence of idolatry. They were acting just like the people of the land. And this is our battle too. It's yours and it's mine. We look for possessions and we look for people and we look for places to provide for us the satisfaction that only God can provide. We cling to temporal things to gain a sense of purpose and respectability. We cling to temporal things for security and for pleasure. And in doing this, we betray God as the soul's ultimate satisfaction and eternal stability. It might be why you're so angry with your mate. Why you can't seem to speak a kind word 
to one another. It might be why you're depressed about your children. It might be why you cannot ever think of anything but a different job and more money. I don't know what it is, but search your heart and know where I am depending on the temporal things of this life to bring me satisfaction, security, and importance, I'm clinging to an idol. Only God can satisfy your soul. We can find great joy in the things of this world that have been provided, in the people that are in our lives, in the places that we can go. We can find great joy and pleasure in them when God is our soul's ultimate delight. And whenever He is not, we cannot appreciate people and places and possessions rightly. Israel's dealing with that. That's why these marriages are happening. Because she's clinging to a way to get up in the world. To find security. Loving things more than she loved God. We'll leave for next week to consider how the Israelites dealt with this infidelity and how we think about these matters. But let me stop here to draw just a few lines of application as we've already begun let me continue let's get this right as we build the bridge god is not opposed to interracial marriage that's a wrong way to read this text the first wedding i performed as a young pastor united a black man and a white woman i believe on the authority of scripture that god smiled on that union both were believers in Christ, both had a credible testimony of faith in Him, and it was that faith that linked them together far more significantly than their race. A word I don't even like to use, but biblically, I don't like to use, but we use it. We're all of one race. Adam and Eve are our father and mother. But back to the point. On this side of the cross, Jesus Christ unites Jews and Gentiles in one body. According to Galatians 3 and verse 28, there are in Christ no racial barriers that distinguish us as members of the church. If there are no racial barriers in Christ, then how can there be racial barriers that are significant in the lesser covenant of marriage? In Christ is the ultimate covenant. Even under the old covenant, as we've mentioned, the Moabitess Ruth married Boaz, an Israelite, and she's one of the only few women listed in the, as participants in the Messianic line. And we talked about Moses and his marriage to an Ethiopian woman and God defending that. There was no problem, even under the old covenant, much less the new, for a person of any race to join the people of God. But that leads to the point of holiness. What God does oppose, what He adamantly restricted then and now, in varying ways, is the marriage of a believer who has been purified from sin 
to an unbeliever who remains lost in darkness and insistent on that way. Now, if a believer finds himself or herself married to an unbeliever, already in that bond of marriage, 1 Peter 3 would indicate they need to remain married. Some might draw the conclusion, well, they should break the bond of marriage because they're mixing light and darkness, believer and unbeliever. But Peter says, no, if you're there, you're already in that relationship, you're to remain in it. But... Entering into such a relationship is a very significant consideration. And I know that 2 Corinthians 6 is not written simply about marriage, but it's so applicable to us in this setting where Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. It's not along racial lines that this distinction is drawn. It's along spiritual lines. How can you unite in fellowship with someone who denies Christ as Lord? How can you have genuine fellowship when you don't agree on Jesus crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again? There cannot be fellowship with light and darkness. The only way we can live honorably as salt and light in this world is to remain morally distinct from our world. Anti-God thinking Love of self, lust for money and pleasure and the like characterize the life focus of the lost. When we are drawn into that same orientation, our world's very different than the Israelites here in Ezra 9. But we can be drawn into that very same orientation. They through these contractual marriages. We in a thousand other ways through media, through relationships, When we're drawn in as a holy people into that orientation, it is as if a thick fog dulls our light. We are called to be a holy people. We are called to be salt and light. We are called to shine before this world. We cannot shine brightly if we do not remain holy. For those of you who are unmarried among us here today, If you get the implications of this, this really narrows the field, doesn't it? To walk with Christ is to say, I've got a narrow field. I can't just marry whoever likes me and whoever I like. I need to marry someone in the Lord. Someone who shares the belief and confidence and lives out the reality that Christ is Lord. That's a serious consideration for you. It's a matter of fidelity to Christ. It's a matter of commitment to holiness. And again, if you are married and in a relationship with one who is not a believer, love that person and remain married. That's God's counsel to us. It's not to end something, and we don't, we'll talk more about that next week. 
But this leads thirdly to a consideration of repentance. One aspect of a holy life, an aspect we see in stark display in this chapter, is the practice of repentance. This means that we must, against our culture's orientation, have a category of sin. God's Word counsels and speaks to us It commands us to think and to act in certain ways, and there are times when we break His law. I must have a category for that. It's not an I'm okay, you're okay world. It's a God is Lord and we break His will, and we have to come to terms with that. And so we experience conviction of sin in the face of Scripture. We have objective guilt. We know what that is and we know how to deal with it. We say in our lives as followers of Christ and as light in this world, I confess that what I have done was wrong. I confess that what I have not done was wrong. I broke your law. Forgive me. So I love about Ezra's prayer. There is no excuses. How often we lace our convictions, our confessions rather, how often we lace our confessions with excuses. I did this, it was not right, and I did it because of this person, this situation. And we link with our confessions excuses that point the finger to someone else, to some circumstance, and excuse ourselves. We should know with Ezra what it means to repent. I open my heart, I hold nothing back, and I say simply, I am wrong. I have broken your law. I confess that this is sin, and I ask you in your mercy. To forgive. How does he do that? How does God forgive us just because we say it? Of these magical words, I confess what I've done is wrong, please forgive me, it's all solved, it all goes away. How does God forgive us? Does he simply dismiss our sin, sweep it under the carpet? No, that would not be just. And as steadfastly loyal and loving as our God is, he is equally just but He provides the payment for our sins. How does He do that? This is where we, again, bridge the gap between Ezra 9 and our day. We remember that the very start of the Bible, right after the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3, God said, I will send a representative man to crush the head of Satan. It's cryptic, but that's what he's saying in Genesis 3.15. A man will come to crush Satan's head. How do we know who that is? Immediately in Genesis chapter 4, there is the beginning of two lines, a lineage of people. And it is clear as that works itself out that God traces an identifiable lineage of people through whom God's promise will be realized. 
this promise passing through bloodlines is vital for the identification of God's Messiah. A lot of people die, and a lot of people during the Roman Empire died on crosses. How do we know who this Messiah is? The Bible stresses that the promised son would be an offspring of Abraham. And through Abraham, though he had various children, it's through his son Isaac that the promise passes. And from Isaac to Jacob, and of all of Jacob's sons, it's through Judah that a king would come. And that king was King David. And from King David, well, let's say it this way, there is no, it is no accident that Matthew begins. The New Testament starts after a 400-year dramatic pause of no revelation. It starts with a genealogy. It's saying everything you've seen in that Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, King David, we're going to start the whole thing in the New Testament with a genealogy. Jesus of Nazareth is a son of King David. And stress is laid on the fact that he is born in David's royal city of Bethlehem. A son of David, a son of Judah, of Abraham, of Adam. So what does Ezra 9 have to do with us? What does it have to do with Christmas for that matter? Looking at it from a human aspect only, and I caution you as I say these words, but the repentant remnant in Ezra 9 saved Messiah. The stirring of conscience that led to tears of repentance and ultimately to a radical response of obedience was used by God to preserve the lineage of Messiah. These people didn't know what they were doing. But that's what they're accomplishing. That's what God is accomplishing through them. Apart from this repentance, Israel would have most certainly been amalgamated into a culture of pagans who practiced syncretism, and the faith would have been lost, and the lineage and the line of Messiah would have been lost. Now, that's, of course, hypothetical. But these real people are truly repenting and are truly saving the line of Messiah, being used of God to that end. Had Satan gotten his way, it would have soon been impossible to identify Messiah. The repentant faith of these believers preserved the holiness of that line and was essential for us to identify Him. And so Matthew and Luke, the two gospel writers that report Christ's birth narrative, stress His genealogical connections to the promise that this is the one who will crush Satan's head. Angels in the fields outside of Bethlehem said what? For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In the city of David, many horrors followed the disobedience of God's people in the centuries between Ezra 9 and the birth of Jesus. But there was one thing alive, and that was the lineage. The connections of Israel, where they were at Jesus' time, all the way back to Adam, were alive. 
And a group of repentant Israelites demonstrate to us that you may never determine the good that comes from repentance. The repentance of this remnant was used by God to save Messiah. And Messiah comes then to save His people from their sins. This is a season in light of what we have seen of God's people way back in this ancient, distant setting of Ezra. This is a season of repentance. It is repentance that permits us to stand here today and celebrate Messiah. And it is repentance that marks us as God's people. I have sinned under God's word. I, bring, I come to a place of conscious understanding of my sin. And I turn from it in dependence upon his mercy. These people did that and today we sing to the glory of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for their obedience, and we know that you're never stymied by the sin of your people, but we also recognize how you use them uniquely, and we praise you. And thank you for the privilege that we have now to sing of Christ crucified and risen and coming again, praying in behalf of those who know not Christ as Savior to recognize that the way that you forgive sin is by your Son paying the penalty of that sin. Bearing our sin in His body on the cross, and I pray for anyone who's not trusted in that message for their forgiveness, that they would come not with excuses and not with a list of good deeds, but come in abject spiritual poverty, in repentance that makes no excuses, and throws themselves upon your mercy. For those of us who have come to know that joy, we sing, we sing gladly and with thanksgiving for who you are and all that you have accomplished for us in Christ. May we shine forth that light in our marriages, in the holiness of our life, and in a pattern of willing repentance. We pray this, that you'll do this in us through our Savior and the indwelling of your spirit. Amen.